Please take out your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 27. And as you're turning to Acts chapter 27, I want to thank all of our visitors for being here this morning, but also want to encourage you as we go through the lesson this morning to please take out a Bible. Please look on in the Bible with somebody next to you if you do not have one with you. I want you to understand right up front that I'm just a human being and that I make mistakes, but that God never does. So make sure you check out everything I say in God's word because it is God's word that matters and what I say doesn't if it's not in there. This morning I want to just take a brief look as we begin at verses 13 through 20 of Acts 27. Paul, as we know, is on his way to appear before Caesar at his request. And this is that account in part. Verse 13. When the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. But not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called Euryclidon. So when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. Running under the shelter of an island called Clauda, we secured the skiff with difficulty. When they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship, and fearing lest they should run aground on the Sirtis sands, they struck sail, and so were driven. And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. On the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. Now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest beat on us, all hope, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. There's not much in life that is worse than the loss of all hope. As all too many patients and prisoners and poor and homeless and afflicted and storm-tossed people will tell you. You can take away a person's health. You can take away a person's wealth. You can take away a person's freedoms. You can take away a person's family and possessions. And those things are terribly difficult, but people have been known to survive and can still survive as long as they have hope. But you take away a person's hope, and that's about as bleak as it gets. As it says in Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 14, the spirit of a man will sustain him in sickness, but who can bear a broken spirit? You see reflected right there that you can take away a lot from a person, but you take their hope, and they've lost about everything. I would ask us to keep our finger here, or hand here in Acts 27, and turn for just a moment to Job chapter 7. We'll see this same truth reflected. Job chapter 7. You'll recall as you're turning there, that in the beginning, Job chapters 1 and 2, that Job lost family, wealth, 
health, lost a lot of things. But what was Job's attitude? Job's attitude was, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he would not curse God with his mouth. He had hope still. But what happens when you take away his hope? Look what he says in Job chapter 7, beginning at verse 3. When I lie down, I say, when shall I rise? And the night be ended. For I have had my fill of tossing till dawn. My flesh is caked with worms and dust. My skin is cracked and breaks out afresh. This is a far cry from the man who was so joyful and so hopeful, even though you've taken away his health and his wealth and his family and so much in chapters 1 and 2. This man is a far cry. Look what he says. Verse 8, verse 6, I'm sorry, verse 6. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and are spent without hope. Oh, remember that my life is a breath. My eye will never again see good. He lost hope. He said, I'll never see good again. Every day's bleak. It's horrible. I've lost my hope. There are few things in life that are worse than the loss of hope. We can endure many things except the loss of hope. You'll turn back with me to Acts chapter 27. You'll see that same spirit of hopelessness born throughout this story. We know that in the previous chapters, the Apostle Paul has appeared before several, a couple of governors, Festus, Felix, he's appeared before King Agrippa and he's requested to go to Rome to appeal to Caesar. And so he's taken as a prisoner and he's going to move forward here throughout Acts chapter 27 in this ship toward that meeting with Caesar. It's interesting as we talk about this, we could say, we could say this chapter is a chapter fraught with difficulty, not in understanding it, but the word difficulty, the word difficulty occurs three times out of the four times it occurs in the New Testament right here in this chapter. The word difficulty, three out of the four times, 75% of the time it occurs in the New Testament, it's in this chapter. Most of us know the story, we're not going to read every verse, but in Acts chapter 27, verses 1 through 5, as I said, the Apostle Paul is a prisoner on his way to Rome. As we read through it, we will find out in verse 4 that the winds are already contrary. The winds are already blowing against the direction that they want to go. Verse 5 of Acts 27 finds them in the city of Myra, of Lycia. And we pick up in verse 6. There in the city of Lycia, the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy. And he put us on board. When we had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty, there's our first occurrence of the word, off Nidus, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmon. <laughs> Little did I know when I originally planned to do this sermon today that we'd be on a blustery, windy day ourselves here and, and we, we can kind of identify with the, with the wind here blowing so hard against them. Verse 8. Passing it with difficulty, we came to a place, second occurrence of the word, called Fair Havens near the city of Lycia. Now when much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous because the feast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Men, 
I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also our lives. I want you to stop and consider from what we've just seen thus far. The journey had already been a difficult journey, verses 7 and 8. Nothing was going right. Now, situation, the situation, the weather, the wind, the circumstances as it gets later into the year is getting downright dangerous. That is the word that we see in verse 9. And so the man of God amongst them sought to warn them. He sought to warn them that if they kept going in their chosen direction, not only was it going to end badly, but that they were going to lose everything, including their lives, verse 10. But you know, as is typical, as was typical with them in that day and as is typical with us in our day, as we consider that, you know, so many people want their own way. They want to use human wisdom instead of listening to God's wisdom, instead of listening to those who know God. They decide that they're not going to listen to the counsel of the man of God amongst them and decided that they were going to proceed in their own direction, doing what they wanted, how they wanted, when they wanted. And that was that. Not that we've probably ever known anybody like that in our lives, right? And so they did. They did what they wanted, how they wanted, when they wanted, and totally dismissed the wisdom brought by God's messenger there. Look at verse 11. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. I'm sorry, by Paul. I would say, isn't it funny? But it's really not funny at all. Isn't it tragic? How some, no matter the circumstances, choose to listen to the wisdom of fallible men as opposed to the people of God's wisdom. They reject the loving words of the maker of the universe who's trying to save them from difficulty, save them from having to, to brave certain things, trying to save them from the tragedy of loss of life and so much that they hold dear. You know, it's kind of tragic how people reject God and listen to human beings and still expect it all to turn out really well. It's amazing. Galatians 6, 7, and 8 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. We're going to listen to men's fallible human wisdom. We basically get what we deserve if we're going to reject the wisdom of God. The Bible also says the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 1 Corinthians 1, 25. God on his most foolish day. Not that God is foolish, because he's not. But I'm simply using the language Paul used. God in his most foolish day is wiser than all the wisdom of men of all the ages put together. Nonetheless, they chose to listen to men instead of the wisdom of God. Verses 12 and 13. When the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. Hmm. 
I'm sorry, start in verse 12, I missed the verse. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also, if by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete opening toward the southwest and northwest in winter there. When the south wind blew softly, supposing they obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. I want you to notice some of the key words there. Notice in verse 12, the majority. The majority. Just because the majority of people choose to believe something doesn't make it right with God. Just because the majority put their heads together and figure out this is the direction we're going to go, this is the route we're going to take, and here's how we're going to do it, that does not mean that it's God's wisdom. The majority does not equal God's wisdom. Number two, notice when they thought they had obtained their desire. It's what they wanted to do. You know what the Bible says about people that choose to reject God's word? They will not listen to God's word. They don't want to listen to God's word. They want to do it their way. You know the Bible tells us in Thessalonians that God will send them a deluding influence. As probably more than one of you were over the past few days, Karen and I were in Tulsa. We were in there yesterday. We were in a bookstore that sells Bibles and they had a, they had a study Bible there and I don't know why I do it, because it always upsets me, but I thumb through study Bibles. And typically, one of the places I go is Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, where Peter tells them to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins, and they shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's always, I'm not going to say interesting, it's always predictable what they're going to say about that verse in a study Bible. So I opened up this new study Bible, and sure enough, it talks about how, based on that verse that says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, Man's wisdom and man's study note says repentance is essential for salvation. However, we know that baptism is not essential to salvation because there are many other verses in the Bible that, that tell us that we are saved by faith only. There is only one passage in the entire Bible where the phrase faith only occurs. It is James chapter 2 and verse 26, and it says, So you see then that a man is saved by works and not by faith only. So my point in bringing that up is simply this. You got the same situation you got here in the story of the shipwreck. You got God's word telling us that, that it that we're not saved by faith only in James 2. You've got God's word telling us we need to be baptized in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38 in order to be saved. You've got God's word. You've got the wisdom of God. But then you've got the little men's commentary notes on the side to say, oh no, that's not the way it is. How many people are going to suffer shipwreck of their faith because they choose to listen to what man said in this column rather than what God said in the divinely inspired text? It's the same thing we got here. We have a choice every day. Do we study and listen to God or do we listen to the wisdom of men? This is why the bulletin article is so crucial today. We have got to study and know our Bibles. Because if we just simply take that men's section of those study notes where it says, well, we know that baptism is not essential, you're taking man's word that contradicts completely God's word. You've got to know where to turn. These people decided to go ahead. The majority obtained their desire and there they went. However, 
As always happens when you trust men's word more than God's word, disaster strikes. Look at verse 14. Not long after a tempestuous headwind arose called Euryclidon. So when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive, and running under the shelter of an island called Clauda, we secured the skiff with difficulty. When they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship. Fearing lest they should run aground on the Sirtis sands, they struck sail, and so were driven. There's a couple things I want you to notice here. Please notice they secured the skiff with difficulty. Had this little boat in case the big one sank. And it was hard for them under those howling winds and, and this terrible wind and rain and everything that's going on there. It was very difficult even for these sailors to get that ship, that, that little boat, where they needed it to be. Please notice that when they had taken it on board with difficulty, verse 17, they used cables to undergird the ship. Do we all understand what that means? When they had these wooden ships in those days, when they had these wooden ships and these storms would come in and they'd beat on these wooden ships, what they would often do in a terrible storm is they'd take cables and they would hook the cables on one side of the ship and then they would have sailors either swim underneath the ship or they'd put it over the front with a rope on it and bring it around. And basically what they did with the ship in the water, the hull like this, they'd put a cable under it and they'd tighten these cables up basically like this on the sides of the ship down under to hold the whole thing together. You imagine doing that, you imagine doing that in a storm? So here's this wooden ship and they undergirded it with cables. They were afraid the ship was going down. They were afraid the storm was going to rip this thing apart. And here's the thing, these people, these sailors, this ship was their lifeline. If this ship came apart in a storm, they were done. This was their lifesaver. This was their refuge, these sailors, this ship. And now all of a sudden they've got to undergird it with cables, they get the skiff on board with difficulty. All of a sudden they fear that their safety zone will not withstand this storm but that it might come apart at the seams. And so they did what they could. They did what they could to shore it up, to strengthen it up. They did everything under their power. They did what they could by their own human hands and means and wisdom to try to make sure the ship stayed together. In other words, they were fighting that which was way beyond their control, the storm, with only the strength of their own frail, feeble human knowledge and know-how. For those of you who know the rest of the story, did the cables keep the ship together? They did everything they could. Seasoned seamen did everything they knew how in their human knowledge and frailty and wisdom to try to keep their safe refuge together so that it would save their lives. But you know, when we rely on human wisdom and we try to shore up our safety zone based on human thinking, it's not going to work. It's still going to come apart at the seams. This is a fight that they cannot hope to win. Like those who seek to fight against the rulers of the darkness of this age and against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places without the full armor of God. Brethren, I cannot tell you how many times over the years I've seen people try to fight the biggest storms in their life on their own without the word of God. If we're going to face, if we're going to face the quote unquote spiritual forces of wickedness, 
Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. We've got to have on the full armor of God. We've got to have the sword of spirit. We've got to know what our Bible says. We have to have an increased faith. And that faith only comes by hearing the word of God over and over and over. In other words, the bulletin article this morning, we have got to be in study at every opportunity in order to have the full armor of God on and strengthened. Their great ship, the lifelong training and experience of the helmsmen, the sailors, all meant nothing. Nothing. It was fruitless in the face of this storm. They were not going to be delivered by any of those things. In fact, reliance on their own resources, their own wisdom, their own training, their own experience, Reliance on that and that alone was only going to lead to the loss of the ship, the loss of the cargo, and their loss of even life itself. As we are reminded, and they needed to be, by Psalm 33. And I'm going to insert some thoughts here into Psalm 33, verses 4 and following. If you want to turn back there, keep your finger in Acts 27. Turn back to Psalm 33. They needed to be reminded of this psalm and have it applied to them as I'm about to do. Psalm 33, beginning at verse 4. For the word of the Lord is right, and all his work is done in truth. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations, or in the case of Acts 27, the Lord brings the counsel of the centurion, the helmsman, and the ship owners, Acts 27, 11, to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples, that is the majority from Acts 27, 12 in this case, of no effect. The counsel of the Lord, as delivered by the man of God, verses 9 and 10 of Acts 27, stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generation, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. The Lord looks down from heaven, he sees all the sons of men. From the place of his dwelling, he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually, he considers all their works. Verse 16, no king is saved by the multitude of an army, nor, in the case of Acts 27, are the sailors saved by their savvy shipmates. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse, or in the case of Acts 27, a ship, is a vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy. That's whom God's eye is on those who hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. And I love the last few verses. 
The last few verses here, verses 20 through 22. Look what they say. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our hearts shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name. Let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us just as we hope in you. As New Testament Christians, just a quick side note, our hope is in God no matter, no matter what our training says, no matter what we put our, put our most people put their thoughts in for security. If our hope is in God, it's the only thing that will sustain us just as it did them in Acts chapter 27. Look with me in Acts 27 at verse 18. And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, they weren't just tossed, they weren't just tempest-tossed, they were exceedingly, when the Bible uses the word, ex you know, the Bible, the Bible sometimes seems to minimize things. When it talks about Jesus being crucified, what does it say? And there they crucified him. There's a lot went on, that crucifixion was horrible. But it simply says there they crucified him or they scourged him. We know what scourging is about. The Bible tends a lot of times to seem to just go over these catastrophic events with a minimum of words. And so when you see the word exceedingly, when the Bible comes out and says something is exceedingly, brethren, this was a life and death situation and they thought they were going to die. They were exceedingly tempest tossed. So the next day, they lightened the ship. Well, there it goes. Their cargo, their income, their livelihood, throwing things overboard. Because brethren, there is no hope when you are facing the ultimate storm in your income and livelihood. It cannot save you. The richest people on the planet still face terrible storms in their lives. It can't save you. So they threw it overboard. It's no hope in a time of storm. Verse 19. On the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. D did you get that? Do you know what the ship's tackle was? Spare rigging. Spare sails. Parts so that if the rudder went or cables broke or a mast broke off, you could fix it. Guess what they did? They threw all that overboard. They knew it was over. That wasn't going to save them. The spare tackle for making repairs. Human efforts and the ability to repair the damage done by the storm would come from them things, but that was not going to save them. They had no hope in that, and so they abandoned all of it. They threw it overboard because those things could not save them. The time of storm. Brethren, some of the things that we hold so near and dear the pursuits that we put so much time and effort into, when the ultimate storm hits, it cannot save us. Why is it that human beings come to the point, why is it that we pursue all of these things, we clutch to these things so tightly that we do, we know they can't save us when the ultimate storm hits our lives, we understand that, but we don't want to give them up. These men, come to realize that, but it was only at this desperate point, and they were desperate, verse 20, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, no small tempest beat upon us. All hope that we would be saved was finally given up. No matter what you lose in life, hope is always the last to go. 
but it's still gone. Verse 21. But after long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. If there was ever an I told you so in the scriptures, this is it. And now, but, but look at the message. And now, remember, they've lost all hope. They have no hope. They've finally thrown that overboard too. But Paul says, and now I urge you to take heart. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar, and indeed God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore take heart, men, for I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. Listen, even when people have foolishly rejected God's will, even when people have foolishly rejected the wisdom of God and His Word, and they have caused themselves untold pain and untold loss and untold disaster and hopelessness, God is still there to give them hope. Don't we have an awesome God? even when they had rejected his wisdom, even though they made a mess of everything. Look what Paul says. He says, don't be afraid, take heart. I believe God's going to do just what God said. Did you notice how the phrase, take heart, that you see twice in that section I just read, is sandwiched around, do not be afraid, take heart, don't be afraid, take heart. What a beautiful sandwich. That now there's some lunch. What a beautiful sandwich that is. So Paul goes on to explain God's plan, verse 26. But here's the thing. Just as soon as God gives them hope, verses 27, 8, and 9, just as soon as God gives them hope that they're going to make it, they lost the hope, and God's giving it back to them through Paul. But just as soon as they get to that point, what do they do? God has given them hope. And some immediately, instead of trusting God, return right back around to their former habits of deception, selfishness, and seeking to save themselves through their own human means, verse 30. Aren't we amazing? How many times has people said to God, God, if you'll get me out of this, I'll yada, 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 yada. God gets them out of this, and guess what? We don't yada, 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 yada. What do we do? We go back doing things the way we did them before. They do the same thing. God's given them hope, and they, they turn right around and, and go back to their selfishness and their own wisdom to try to save themselves. However, Paul will have none of it, verses 31 and 2. And in the verses that followed, the man of God amongst them continued to give them even more hope and his God more thanks. And when they were all encouraged, these men that had lost all hope, now the Bible says that they needed to be encouraged, all 276 of these formerly hopeless men made it to shore alive because God is just that good. Don't we have an awesome God? Read, follow along with me. Look at verses 33 and following. As the day was about to dawn, Paul implored them to take food, saying, today's the 14th day you've waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. 14 days! New Year's is coming up. How many of us will make the New Year's resolution to lose a little weight? And by January 2nd, it's like, oops, 14 days. 
in a storm, washed all over the deck, no hope, coming apart at the seams. The ship is not in, in going to save them. Man of God says, therefore, I urge you to take nourishment, for this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. Isn't God awesome? And when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. When he had broken it, he began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and also took food themselves. Can you imagine going through everything Paul has and what do you do in prayer? Thank you, Lord. It's what we all should do. And in all, we were 276 persons on the ship. So when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, threw out the weed into the sea. When it was day, they didn't recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach. And if we go on from there, we find out, verse 44, that they all escaped safely to land. And I'll let you read that this afternoon if you're not familiar with it. But here's the point that I, I, I need desperately for all of us to understand. I want you to take a look back in verse 25. verse 25, Paul says, Therefore take heart, men, for I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. Paul never lost hope. Do you see that? You don't read anywhere in this story where Paul lost hope. The man of God amongst them never lost hope. Do you know why? Because he knew the God of all hope. That's why. He knew the God of all hope, whom, if I may paraphrase and adapt Romans 15, 13 to this situation, he knew the God of all hope, who filled him with all joy and peace in believing, so that he abounded in hope. Paul never lost hope despite the strength of the storm. He never lost hope. You know why? Because like Abraham, like the Bible tells us about Abraham, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what God had promised, he was able to perform. Romans chapter 4, verses 20 and 21 being fully convinced that what God had promised he was able to perform. Do you believe God? When God says, I am the God of all comfort and I am the God of hope, my peace I leave with you, do we really believe he can give that to us? Despite the storm? You know the night Jesus said that, peace I give you, my peace I leave with you. Do you know the night that Jesus said that he was headed for the cross in just a few hours? But he said, you can have my peace, you can have my joy. The God of all hope. You know, Ephesians 2.12 mentions a time when the Gentiles were without Christ, being aliens and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. I didn't grow up in the church, most of you know that. In my 20s, Karen and I were both in our, in our 20s when... We were invited to services and eventually became New Testament Christians, obeyed the gospel. And so it's been a long time, long time, since I was without God in the world. But I'll tell you right now, I can't imagine at my age, looking back on some of the things I've seen other people go through as well as going through myself, 
I can't imagine going through life without God. Life is hopeless and dark enough and difficult enough as it is with God some days. Some days it's still tough. But you know what? Thank God that I am not without God in the world anymore. Paul had hope because he knew the God of hope. What a terrible, hopeless, and desolate place life would be without the God of hope and the great eternal peace-giving comfort and joy and hope that only he can give. Remember, again, from a, a previous sermon not too long ago, when we talk about biblical hope, we're not talking about, oh, I hope the wind stops blowing today. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about something that may or may not happen. When the Bible talks about hope, that word, occurring 54 times in the New Testament in the Greek, means a certain joyful and confident expectation. It means to anticipate, usually with pleasure. Paul had a hope. It was concrete. Do you have that hope this morning? Do you really know God? Are you one of his children based on not some man's commentary notes that tell you that God didn't know what he was talking about, but based on what the word of God actually says? Do you have that hope? Peter, in 1 Peter 1.3, says that we have a living hope. We have a living hope. You know what? Jesus Christ is alive and well. You know why I know that? I know that because the tomb is empty. I have a living hope. We sing a song about that. I have a certain joyful and confident expectation that what this God, who cannot lie, has promised, he's able to perform. That causes me not to fear. But it fills us all with peace and believing so that we abound in hope no matter what storms we might have to face in this life. I want you to turn to one final passage with me, please. And that is to the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, and then we will close. Hebrews Chapter 6, life is tough. Life is incredibly tough. We all have our crosses to bear. Life is hard. Satan is real. Temptation is real. And the evils and sin, sickness, and death of this world comes flooding in on us like we're standing under a tidal wave. But through it all, God tells us that the hope that we have, the concrete assurance that we have, is what will anchor us through anything. No matter the length, the strength, or the ferocity of the storm that we're in. Hebrews chapter 6. I'm not going to read verses 11 through 20, although that's all part of it. I'm simply going to read verses 17 through 19 of Hebrews 6, which say this. Thus God, determining to show abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God. God can't lie. Even if he wanted to, he couldn't. He doesn't want to because it's sin. But even if he wanted to, he couldn't. It's, it's, it's not possible. Because it is impossible for him to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the what? The hope that is set before us, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul. And this doesn't even begin to deal with so many Old Testament verses that tell us the same thing. And right now, 
It's my plan to go into a few of those next Sunday morning. But the question for you this morning, are you sick and tired of the hopelessness of a life lived without constantly learning, living, obeying, and fully leaning on the God of all hope in your life? If you've been pursuing other things which you know, you know in your head they can't save you. You know they can't. Not power, prestige, privilege, popularity, possessions, pride, none of it. You know what all those things, you know what you're going to do with all of those things in the end if you base your hope on them? I'll tell you what you're going to do with them. You're going to throw them overboard because they can't help. And do you know what all those things are going to do to you in the end? They're going to throw you overboard too. Because there is no hope except the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. If you lost hope this morning, if you lost sight of the God of hope, if you have, then it's time to take your eyes off everything else, look beyond the clouds that have obscured the Son of God and to set your hope fully on Him. You can do that by being baptized, asking for the prayers of the church, or if, having a Bible study. If there's any other way we can help, please come forward and let us know. Isn't it time? Isn't it time to have hope in the storm? If you would, please come to the front as we stand and sing. We have an anchor. <laughs>